Beck from Abrio Institute. And this is Ross Rubin at Radical Research. Thanks for joining us again this week for another episode of Techspansive, where we'll dive into some of the news and how it relates to some of the bigger trends in technology. thought we'd start by talking about HQ2, which impacts both Ross in New York and me here in D.C. So it's kind of uh, interesting that both end up being impacted by this. Ross, you have any initial thoughts on this? Um, well, you know, I'm there. It's certainly been uh, a lot of build up to this rumors that these were going to be two of the finalist cities along with Dallas. And it really uh, in, increases Amazon's presence on, on the East Coast. There's been a fair amount of speculation that they want to go uh, closer to Washington in order to be better tied into some of the uh, regulatory discussions uh, around there. And uh, as for New York, you know, they're literally going to, well, not literally, but but they're going to be very close uh, in, in my backyard here in my home borough of, uh, of Queens and right across the river from Cornell Tech, uh, which is a joint venture between Cornell University, my alma mater, and uh, Techion, the uh, uh, technical, very, very well-respected uh, tech technical college uh, in, in Israel where uh, a lot of uh, AI research has been going on. So uh, I think for New York, it, uh, it, it shows that the bet that they placed on uh, attracting that, that graduate center for technology is, is paying off. Uh, we'll have to see what the impact is going to be in terms of, of jobs. It's somewhat controversial as to whether uh, it will result in a lot of local talent being hired or whether it will be a lot of imported talent. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, but it's going to represent certainly a lot of development. Uh, and uh, just in terms of timing, maybe a little bit of a strain, at least in the short term, on uh, the city's uh, public transportation systems, which have been going through kind of a rough patch for, for the past few years. So uh, it's unusual in that it's uh, something that's, you know, most likely going to affect my, my daily non-technical life, uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps even more than my daily dealings with technology. And Amazon is moving that? into Crystal, Crystal City, which is where my office used to be and is just uh -huh. down the road from where I live today. And where I work mm -hmm. today, and so uh, as, as you noted, clearly they're building out a DC presence. They'll be right across the river. I think another key facet, which I really haven't heard talked much about, is that Amazon employs a tremendous number of of economists, and they're hiring mm. a tremendous number of economists to help mm. do a lot of the analytics that they do and the the pricing that they do. They the economists within Amazon perform a variety of, of different tasks. DC is a big town for economists. You have obviously all of the government agencies, the Federal Reserve. And so it's a natural place to uh, look to grow that pool of talent and, and those jobs. So I could imagine some of those jobs might be housed in DC. Clearly government affairs and others will be housed there as they, they grow that out. I was one who several weeks ago talked about why it made sense to have multiple cities because it gives mm -hmm. them more senators. So it was natural 
I think for them to, to split uh, the headquarters into two locations. Now they'll have six senators instead of just two. And <laughs> from what from what I can tell, it will be a slow build out of jobs over a long period of time. Crystal City is actually an area that has a tremendous amount of vacant office space, commercial space mm-hmm. right now. So that also made a lot of sense for them. And I think you'll see the build out of jobs over time. And and I had seen some coverage about how, uh, particularly, I, I think more in the D.C. area than the New York area, it was really going to create uh, somewhat of a technical talent crunch. You know, a lot of competition for for technical talent. Do you do you get that sense, or or do you think that this could really be the start, or or really be a, a huge boost to D.C. as a as a technology hub? Well, DC's always been a technology hub if you look out the Dulles Corridor, and AWS has a very big presence in the DC area because they have a big government uh, role there, as do a lot of the technology companies. So you actually have a strong government and defense practice. Obviously, Mm -hmm. you have AOL and some others who built built out here in DC. And so DC's always had a unique technology hub while it doesn't necessarily look like Silicon Valley, definitely has a an infrastructure play or or you know def, again a defense government play there, and so you might see some of that AWS workforce build out in that office as well. Hmm. And I, I would say probably here there was significant interest in the media uh, industry, particularly on on the publishing side. Uh, and probably the financial industry hub as well, uh, because a, a lot of the hedge funds and um, you know more more advanced uh, institutional investing companies are really recruiting a, a lot of that, really attracting a, a lot of that um, machine learning talent, a lot of that algorithm uh algorithmic development you've got de shaw here uh, in new york for example so uh jeff bezos's uh old employer uh back in the day so uh so i i think that's that was probably part of the appeal for for them as well yeah i think being in new york makes a lot of sense as you mentioned the media connections and the wall street connections and the talent mm-hmm. that's developing really in both those markets dc and in new york and it offers a new city for those who don't want to live in Seattle, uh, the option to be on the East Coast. So I think it makes a lot of sense for them. And we'll see that build out in, in the years to come. Mm-hmm. Another story coming out of the Seattle area is the rumors that the next Xbox will be discless. And I think that's, to me, something that you would definitely expect. When I look at my own kids and their cohort of friends, rarely do they go to disc. Almost everything they're doing is streaming content or playing online obviously the the number one game in that space is Fortnite today and so you see that being a big draw uh, i think that's a natural place for those game consoles to be and obviously indicates where we're going generally with content no absolutely and uh i i think we've we've gone that way i mean certainly it's been trending that way for many years and the reason that things are going this way is simply because it, it's offered a better experience. Uh, even taking uh, streaming out out of the equation, they were saying that that this wouldn't have an optical drive. I 
I, I believe it would still have a hard drive, so you would still have uh, games resident on the machine instead of being purely streamed, uh, although there's been a lot of discussion uh, about that too, and that's probably a, a broader discussion, but um, uh, other companies have tried this before. Sony tried it with their portable line, and uh, kind of an interesting place in the life cycle of that console as well. So they had the PSP, which was a, a relatively successful console for quite a few years. And then they tried producing a version of it that didn't use discs called the PSP Go. And that didn't work so well for a couple of reasons. And, and they created it sort of in the, in the twilight of, of the PSP uh, and before they introduced a, a, a successor, a true successor, uh, called the um, <clears throat> the uh, PlayStation Vita, uh, and uh, and and that portable console primarily struggled due to uh, competition with uh, with smartphones, which which was really beginning to ascend. But uh, but uh, I, I think there's a sort of similar life cycle play here. Uh, Xbox One has been out for a number of years now. There is rumor that. They may uh, introduce a true next-gen console in the, tw say, 2020 timeframe. So I think this may be some a, a way for them to just test the waters. And, of course, in the past, a really big uh, objection to, to this kind of experiment would come from the retailers, right? They really wanted to sell the games. And uh, Walmart and, uh, you know, Toys R Us and GameStop, probably the big three factors here in the U.S. And, of course, now Toys R Us is, is gone. So um, so I guess, you know, that may have represented the, the tipping point in terms of them feeling emboldened enough to finally cut that. Uh, well, it's not really cutting the cord. It's, uh, you know, cutting cutting the retail cord in, in some ways. And uh and just going to um, you know pure pure digital distribution, and I think look we're a week out from Black Friday now. Clearly, that's a a big time for physical game sales. You get right. people into the stores. You have some titles discounted. You have the release of some newer titles. You have some unique bundling offerings. You're really trying to drive consumers to buy that and it, it, buy that, if you will, as they're already in the store buying other things. And so I think it does hurt the retailers, whether it's the traditional consumer electronics retailer, certainly the GameStops of the world, or the other mass market retailers like Target and Walmart. And I was actually mm -hmm. surprised that when you look at GameStop's stock, it's not down farther mm -hmm. than it than it was this week. I would have thought that they would have been really hurt by this type of news. But they've done a really good job of reinventing themselves time and again. Yep in the face of a very challenging environment, an environment that's increasingly moving towards digital downloads. So we'll see yeah. what, the, what the next chapter looks like for them. And, and perhaps, uh, again, go, looking at the Xbox One life cycle, you know, kind of the, the golden years, the, the real rush of, of A-plus titles, you could argue a, a lot of those titles have been bought. And yet Microsoft is investing more in game studios now, acquiring a number of game studios. So they may be looking to, <coughs> excuse me, ramp up uh, production of new titles uh, over the past two years, or perhaps build a pipeline for this new console so that they enter the market 
a lot more strongly than they did with the Xbox One, where they they came into the market with a significant deficiency of exclusives compared to PlayStation, and that was uh, one one of the reasons they fell behind. I, I would also say that when Sony tried the PSP Go, there had been a lot of rumors that they would enable a disc trade-in offer so that if you could, or even if you could perhaps prove somehow that you own the disc, they would allow you to have the digital version of that game. And there was a lot of discussion about that, but it never came to fruition. And it seems that Microsoft is planning to move ahead with that um, that plan. So I, I think that could be very interesting where uh, if they continue to sell some kind of physical product or if GameStop could sell some kind of code and had the uh, ability to to discount that in some way, if if they could work out some way for Microsoft to honor that on a digital download, that might be some way to, to get the retailers in, almost like a, a iTunes gift card uh, is today. I think that's a great point of trying to still engage those retailers who will be important to them in selling accessories and hardware. And I think we've seen the game console manufacturers, whether it's Sony or Microsoft, move away from the traditional five and six year windows that they were in for 35 years and moving more toward a continuous evolution, trying to continuously move people into the hardware. And the, the game titles now are updating quicker than the hardware needs to update. And so it would make sense that they would move uh, a bigger piece of the revenue channel to those digital downloads. And you also see what games like Fortnite have done where the game is essentially free, but players are spending a tremendous amount by purchasing premium add-on features like skins and dance moves right. and other things like that. Yeah, that could be that could be another exclusive um, opportunity for them. I mean, for some time they have offered exclusive uh, DLCs, as uh, we say in the biz, uh, downloadable content, uh, add-on packs that um, that personalize the game. Uh, and if you know, particularly if you've purchased it from GameStop, so uh, or another retailer, so perhaps there is a. Uh, a way for them to to offer those kinds of revenue streams, even even in a digital world, and even in a an era where the game tends to be distributed for free, and uh, and most of the the profit is made uh, on the so-called whales, you know, the people who who are really engaged with the game and spend you know hundreds of dollars or or even more in some cases uh, uh, in, in investing in their, in their character in the gameplay. Let's move on and, now from, from that story to the next story that you wanted to hit on Ross regarding Microsoft and Windows. So we'll stay with our Seattle theme this week. Yes. Uh, and uh, it's somewhat timely in that uh, Qualcomm is uh, the chip company is having its, uh, annual, I think third annual, Snapdragon Summit uh, in a couple of weeks where they uh, announce uh, the next generation of their flagship uh, processor um, that's used in, in many different uh, smartphone brands. 
And uh, last year came the official news of uh, Windows on Snapdragon. So for many years, if you wanted to buy a, a PC, it would use a, uh, an Intel chip or, or an AMD chip. Uh, and Microsoft has long flirted with the idea of using the kind of chip architectures, uh, ARM architectures that are very commonly used in, in smartphones. Uh, but uh, but they had struggled uh, with that for some time, and this is their their latest uh, attempt at that. <clears throat> and at least in terms of the experience, uh, it's probably better than what we've seen from them in some time. The way it works is that it for most tasks it it looks and feels just like a a Windows experience, but there are some applications that uh, it has to uh, emulate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so, uh, what what they're looking to announce now is that they're going to provide a way for developers to bring more advanced applications, these 64-bit applications that uh, that the Qualcomm architecture could not run, uh, and and provide a way for developers to compile those applications for Snapdragon processors. So. This is a little bit more technical than, than we typically get on the podcast, but basically what it comes down to is Microsoft trying to offer a, a greater variety of PCs in the marketplace and PCs with, uh, in some cases, far longer battery life. That is probably the main advantage of going to this architecture. And, uh, and they have said uh, enable new form factors Although we really haven't seen a lot of that yet, most of the first five or six machines that have been released on this architecture have uh, have, have looked quite familiar. You know, they've they've looked a lot like Surface type computers or Lenovo Yoga type computers, uh, so that they've they've had tablet functionality. But you know, if you were to just look at them, you would say, uh, you know, that looks like a PC that I would see on the shelf at, at Best Buy today, uh, you know, relatively mid-range to high-end PC. So uh, Qualcomm has been making these chips faster. They've been adding a lot more AI. They've been improving the efficiency. Uh, with the latest round, the performance has gotten a lot better. And so uh, it will be interesting to see if this next generation now really makes them a stronger alternative to the uh, to the Intel-based PCs because who doesn't want longer battery life? And what they have been promising with this is that you know you can go three four days uh, of of reasonable use without having to charge your PC. Um, so uh, so that I think would be welcomed by a lot of business travelers uh, and and people who are who are on the road a lot uh, or people who just want to leave the charger behind for improved uh, mobility and portability. Uh, and, and of course, you know, they also have the LTE connections built in. So you're always connected. That's what they've called this architecture, the always connected PC. So uh, it's been off to a slow start. I would say overall, I'm, I think consumer awareness is very low, but as the uh, offerings get a bit more competitive, maybe we'll see the marketing uh, step up a little bit. Have you uh, seen any of these uh, always connected PCs or have had a chance to, to try any, 
Sean? Well, going to your point, I think one of the, the key differentiations here is this longer battery life. And that's become the killer feature that we want. It isn't more power per se, but the ability right. to be more flexible in our use. And so we're, we're thinking about that more and how we design the hardware. And I do think from that, you'll see form factors change as you start to develop new use case scenarios around and always on, uh, you know, quick to boot up, quick to access type of device. And so it starts with this desire to have longer battery life as the killer feature, as the, the most important feature. And then hopefully in a couple of iterations, it will drive entirely new form factors. And that will open up a, a new form of computing, I think. And so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. I, and I, I think it also has implications for uh, Microsoft's friends in, in Cupertino because what Microsoft is basically showing is that you can take an architecture that has been highly optimized for Intel chips and bring it to an ARM processor, a smartphone-like processor. And so there have been many rumors over the past few years that Apple, which has been investing uh, very significantly in its own chips, will make the switch and move Macintoshes to uh, its own chip architecture. It mentioned at the iPad Pro uh, rollout that we discussed a few weeks ago about how competitive uh, the iPad Pro's processor was with many of the chips and laptops coming out uh, that have come out over the past year, I think they said faster than 90% of the laptops that have shipped in the past year. So let's also bear in mind that, you know, a lot, a lot of those were lower end machines as, uh, as is often the case in the high volume windows market. But, but point, point taken that uh, even compared to Apple's own high-end chips that, that they tend to use in the Mac, it's it's quite competitive. So a lot of people think it's it's only a matter of time before uh, Apple switches uh, off Intel architecture to to their own chips. And so uh, when if and when that happens, I think Microsoft wants to be able to respond to that with with some of the same benefits. I mean, they're unlike Apple, they're not developing their own chips. Uh, at this point, but uh, but they would still like to get some of those uh, some of those benefits, such as long battery life. So, you know, over time, uh, just like Qualcomm has taken a big hit from Apple uh, moving away from their modems and their chips, you know, they are uh, a significant customer of Intel, and so Intel may take something of a hit if uh, if Apple moves away but but potentially a much greater hit if a lot of you know some of those high volume PC companies HP uh, Dell and Lenovo really really start to embrace this uh, they have uh, you know they've only really started to and even most of their Chromebooks uh, are on Intel processors today but um, but it's definitely opening a door I think you see generally the move towards more mobile computing, doing more with mobile computing. And, and obviously that will start to change the form factors that might start to change how we compute and where we compute and why we compute, but pushing us more in, in that direction. And there was lots of talk about the iPad Pro becoming the laptop replacement. 
I think that only mm-hmm. makes sense in an environment where computing starts to change. And so we really haven't gotten to that point yet where we're changing where we compute, how we compute, why, and most importantly, why we compute. And so that will start to, to evolve as we start to move towards a, a stronger, more mobile-centric paradigm. I, I definitely agree, Sean, but I, I also think that these platforms have to move a little bit toward the middle as well. And in fact, I just wrote an article about this for Fast Company, looking at some of the differences between the iPad Pro and the Surface Pro, not so much in terms of the specs, but in terms of how each company is is approaching it and what their legacy is and what their goals are. So uh, yes, um, the iPad still represents something of a of, of a, a change in the way of working that can sometimes be a little painful, but also over the past few iterations, Apple has tried to do more to accommodate people used to a more traditional workflow. And I think there, there's been some benefit to that. You know, it's, it's not a desktop operating system. And as you just said, uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, at least for now. And I, I agree the nature of those tasks uh, will be will be changing over time. So so it'll be interesting to see what uh, Qualcomm uh, announces at its event in in the next few weeks. I think uh, one of them will certainly be about this Windows platform, but uh, but I'm sure they'll have other announcements related to their bread and butter, uh, which is really uh, of course uh, smartphones. And at the start of the new year, as we move into CS and we start to see a lot of new product announcements and launches, we could see these general boundaries being tested, looking at new form factors, looking at new computing approaches. So it'll be really interesting to see what the new year brings. Obviously, companies like Qualcomm have a very strong presence at CS, so they'll be highlighting these. Intel also, right next to Qualcomm at CS, has a very strong presence, so they'll be telling their own story as well. And it'd be really interesting to see how those stories point to a new future. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, why okay. don't we wrap it up there, Ross? It was great to, to jump on again. I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. And I just wanted to wish our listeners in the U.S. a uh, a happy Thanksgiving holiday, uh, which will probably take place before we next record. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Uh, Keep the comments and questions coming in. We love the suggestions. We look forward to hearing from you over the next week, and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode.